Hello, Victoria. How are you? Are we pleased to see each other? Listen to us giggling like schoolgirls. <laughs> I'd make a terrible schoolgirl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what they all say. <laughs> well, welcome to the Wide Range Podcast. So, I'm Ben Ando. I'm a former BBC News correspondent, and now I'm somebody who is emerging slowly, blinking into the bright, happy, sunlit uplands of not being in lockdown. And I'm Victoria Mitzi. I'm retreating into my sarcophagus, <laughs> where I quite like to be, of home office, etc. Ex-Bieber, like you. Well, you've created this image that you're like some kind of Egyptian queen who's being buried in her pyramid along with all her slaves and all her riches and all her dogs and cats and things. My sister posted on Facebook my grandparents' graves, which are in Tripoli in Libya and were desecrated uh, oh. twice. Yes. So I'm sort of thinking of all things tomb-like because in that space of about... Well, they were desecrated once and they went back and completely stripped them. But they're quite interesting pictures. So I'm thinking of sarcophagus. Okay, that's a Yeah, it is quite interesting. Um, and if you see all the sad bits and pieces about the people who've gone... Oh, now I'm getting, do you know, talking about my dead relatives and Ben Ando's doing a finger across the throat gesture, the winding up radio it. gesture. I was dancing to Charleston. Well, I, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to this episode because I know, um, because you've organised it all. <laughs> I wish you'd say that have, every week. We're going to have our old friend, the podcast's old friend, Paul Cheston joining us. And friend of the podcast. He is a friend of the podcast and he has been talking, well, you know, he's been in court following um, the very, very last kind of instalment of, of a case that has been shadowing over, oh, it's overshadowing Brighton, overshadowing the UK for getting on to 35 years. This is the Babes in the Wood case. We had the conviction and, and um, sentencing for perjury, a woman who had lied at the original trial, which led to a huge miscarriage of justice and is one of those uh, cases where you finally feel like you've kind of reached the end of the story. So, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, let's... Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Paul has to say about that. What I didn't know until um, talking to Paul was that uh, the sentence that was delivered was maximum sentence that you can for this crime. Nearly maximum. Seven years is maximum Nearly if you maximum. got six. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a measure of just how seriously this has impacted on that community. And also, you know, there were so many occasions when she could have told the truth. I mean, she told the truth at the start and then changed her story. She had so many opportunities to tell the truth and didn't. And I think that probably is exactly why this very, very high sentence for perjury has been handed out. What I really feel is that Paul's enabled, Paul Cheston, former Evening Standard court reporter, has given us the really meaty detail behind the case that you see in the news and he's Absolutely. so good at delivering that yeah i mean paul is a top top reporter and has got uh, an awful lot to say and he's cuddly <laughs> don't you think i think he's lovely great of you to join us hello paul everyone Jackson. <laughs> oh yeah, and Fernando is yeah. here also. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> welcome everyone. We've got um, we're, we're we're picking up Paul Cheston again. Um, we those who listen regularly will have will recall um, us chatting to Paul a few weeks ago. But um, uh, things have come to a head. <laughs> We've got Paul back in again. So welcome again, Paul Cheston. And um, pleasure and to Victoria, be with I think what we're going to be talking to Paul about is is the babes in the wood case, isn't it? Yes, and there's news. After five weeks of a of a uh, extraordinarily hard fought trial, Jennifer Johnson, the last brick really in the in the great Babes in the Woods saga, which has lasted thirty five years, has finally met justice and received a very hefty sentence of six years uh, for basically thirty five years of lies, which allowed her uh, boyfriend, uh, father of her children. Um, not only to get off the uh, the babes in the wood killing itself, but to be free to attack another poor child three years later. Jennifer Johnson didn't show up for the Yes, oh yes, in a, in, a, in a staggering display of cowardice. Um, she refused to leave her cell at uh, Bronzefield uh, to take the, uh, the van uh, back to Lewis to face, um, uh, face the judge and uh, the members of the families who that uh, she had so um, horribly betrayed for all these years. And fun enough, that reflected exactly what happened with uh, Bishop himself, who, who also um, refused to come to court, uh, not only just to, to, uh, to be sentenced, but even came to court to hear his verdict. My recollection, Paul, and I think you'll remember this, is that Levi Belfield pulled the same stunt, didn't he? he exactly, and there's a link there, because Belfield and uh, Bishop uh, were on the same wing and possibly even shared a cell. And there was lots in the um, in the 2018 trial of Bishop, which uh, of his behaviour, which came straight from the Levi Belfield playbook from his two big murder trials. Uh, again, in, forms, in terms of uh, uh, thinking he's uh, he, he had produced a bulletproof defence, which turned to be uh, turned out to be rubbish, of course. And then not to give the victims uh, the satisfaction of seeing him being sentenced. So if we go back to Jennifer Johnson, then, I mean, you, you mentioned there that she's been telling uh, these lies for 35 years. Just just help us with um, exactly what it was she said right at the very start that meant that Bishop got away with the original two murders. Yes, in, it, this is all the way back to 1986, which, as the judge Funlef pointed out, was before uh, uh, he'd even been uh, called up to the bar and it, before many, uh, several members of the jury had even been born. So it's a long, long time ago. And um, two little girls in Brighton were found uh, dead, uh, horribly um, sexually attacked in a wood uh, in the uh, north of, uh, of the town. And um, the police eventually realised that they'd actually stumbled across a key piece of evidence. And that was a discarded blue sweatshirt with Pinto written across uh, the top. It became known as the Pinto sweatshirt. And they hadn't realized it when they picked it up, uh, that in fact it had been discarded um, by the killer on the way back from leaving the girls in the wood back to when he walked back to his house, uh, back to his home. Um, so it took them a little while and then they worked out, they tried to uh, link it to their main suspect, who was a bloke called Russell Bishop. So they took the, so they arrested Bishop, took him to the police station, and then took the sweatshirt back to um, his then girlfriend, a girl called uh, Jenny Johnson. Um, and uh, they, and she said, to, oh, you've brought Russell's uh, clothes back. And uh, they said, no, uh, what we want you to do is to um, 
uh, is, is this Russell's sweatshirt? And she said, well, he's, he's got one very much like it. And said, oh, really? And, uh, and she said, well, I can tell you if it is his, because has it got any red paint on it? Because Russell said red paint on, lo and behold, it had. Uh, so they were pretty confident this was Bishop's sweatshirt. Uh, and of course, it had a lot of um, evidence linking him to the murder scene on it. Um, so it's very important that they take a statement from her immediately, which is what they did. And she said, yes, this is Russell's sweatshirt, um, like a, in a proper statement. Uh, the following day, when the Bishop family found out what she'd said, they immediately tried to get her to turn to retract it. Um, and uh, when they came to trial in 1987, she was called as a prosecution witness to prove the link between the sweatshirt and Bishop. And she turned turtle completely and denied everything. She said the police had stitched her up. Uh, she told some uh, shocking lies about the police conduct and said that this sweatshirt had never belonged to Bishop at all, full stop. And of course, as a consequence of that, the Crown's case, which wasn't great anyway, uh, was completely disintegrated. And to no one's great surprise, Bishop was released. Paul, why was Bishop in the frame originally? Because you said they went to see him, or he was their prime suspect in the first place. Yes, he, he was known to the families and he knew the girls. He was at the park at the time. He's a shady character. Um, and when interviewed, he'd given completely contrasting, uh, contradictory, I should say, explanations. So he was very suspicious and he had the, uh, the opportunity uh, to do that, so that they, they raised him number one prime suspect. And they, uh, uh, when they arrested him, they searched the house. Um, and on the second occasion, they then took the uh, sweatshirt back to try and link it to him. So, I mean, During the when, when the jury was assessing the evidence, I mean, I presume they were told about her original statement that it was yes. his, and yes. then they would have heard her in court saying, no, it definitely wasn't. That's Were you surprised that they, at that time even, didn't sort of think to themselves, well, hold on, somebody might be leaning on that? Well, the, it was pretty clear to anybody who lived in uh, Brighton at that time that Bishop and Johnson were a well-known couple, constantly rowing, constantly arguing. Um, and that, you know... <laughs> I know, the couple's like that. Uh, well, exactly, that's not, that's not unusual. <laughs> uh, but they managed to do it in public as well, in the street as well. And it, it's true that he did... Give her a slap and that sort of thing but she honestly used to um, give as good as she got and um, she certainly wasn't uh, cowed into submission or anything um, by him but um, she had it was clear that to those who were covering the trial that she wasn't going to uh, give evidence against her boyfriend and his family and that you know there was almost certainly she was going to to uh, to deny everything uh, and that's exactly what she did. And so the prosecution had to treat her as a hostile witness. So you have to apply to the judge and say, you know, she has made this statement uh, and we want to question her about the statement she's made and question her as if she's a, uh, an, in terms of cross-examination, even though she's your witness, she's our witness, so to speak. And, and the judge allowed that. And she was put, the statement she originally made, she was put to her line by line by line and she just denied, 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 denied. Over the past few weeks of being in court, what have you concluded? Obviously, this person um, is deceptive, but what have you concluded about her circumstances and what did she put forward? Well, she claimed uh, that uh, she was um, uh, coerced 
by Bishop, by his family, particularly his mother, who was the sort of uh, the matriarch, the head of the of the clan, um, and that they were a, a, a criminal family, and that she genuinely feared for her life. And uh, certainly, Bishop did knock her about, and that there is medical records to prove uh, to to stand that up. So her defence was that she uh, uh, was under duress, which uh, is a defence uh, if the defendant can prove that she was under immediate threat of her life or very serious injury, uh, either being killed or uh, members of family being attacked uh, like that. It had to be an immediate um, threat. But she concocted this fantastic defense that, uh, yeah, that, that virtually her entire time with Bishop was uh, um, uh, a form of marital rape and that uh, she was constantly scared and that she's still scared to this day of him, even though he's, um, uh, he's been uh, behind bars since 1990. Uh, it was, it, it's a plausible defense because everybody knows about battered women syndrome and abusive partners. And we had a psychiatrist, two psychiatrists who, who agreed that there is such things as what they call learned, learned helplessness, that if you're in a relationship and even though you're being battered, uh, you don't even try to, to, to get out of it because what's the point? Um, and uh, coercive um, behavior of, of that nature. But, what the psychiatrist said is you can't backdate that 35 years and say this is what she was thinking at the time based on just uh, uh, interviewing her now. So that, that, was, that raised the point about being uh, about duress, but without supporting it. And also, surely if she had any kind of genuine remorse whatsoever, she could have saved everybody the trouble of the trial by just at least, you know, even 35 years on uh, yes. when the charges were put to her, coughing to her. Oh, oh, totally. She didn't just um, uh, support Bishop in 1986 and 1987 um, when he was released and then attacked the, uh, the, the other child in 1990. Uh, she uh, went mad when the police came to arrest him. And she, in fact, literally attacked the detective inspector, a bloke called Malcolm Brake Bacon, and absolutely thumped him and knocked him down the stairs. Um, this was her... This was her, um, her uh, support for Bishop, that she was what the prosecution called, she was, you know, at the centre of Team Bishop, that I'm supporting you, I want you, all this sort of thing. And, you know, she went to, uh, to court. Uh, not only that, that um, three years later when Bishop sued Sussex police in probably the most misguided uh, criminal uh, um, civil action ever undertaken, he sued Sussex police for wrongful arrest <laughs> back in the Babes in the Wood case. And she made another statement in 1993, years later, when he'd been inside for three years, supporting him again and repeating all her allegations that the police had um, lied to her and stitched her up over 86. And then he went on and on, as you rightly say, Ben, how all these years later with Bishop behind bars, she could very easily have cleared the whole thing up if she had um, gone to the police and said, look, you know, you. this was wrong, this is what happened, but I put my hands up and, and say this is what happened. I don't think she, she certainly wouldn't have got six years imprisonment. I think she probably wouldn't have even gone to prison. She might have, yeah. they might have charged her on the basis that you're going to get a suspended sentence for being honest. Um, but she never did that. She, she uh, walked away even when she um, married a new man and had a, a, another child, um, so a new family together. She still didn't give the uh, the police or the families the closure that that would have that would have uh, uh,
brought. Uh, she's a wicked woman. There's no two ways about it. Michelle Hadaway, Karen's yes. um, mother, was at court. Did yes. you spoken to her? Do you know her? Oh, yeah, very well, yes. In fact, we had a long chat yesterday morning um, uh, on the phone. Um, yes, no, she's, um, uh, she was very strong. Uh, she, she was taken to court every day, uh, and um, as she was at the, the Russell Bishop uh, trial in 2018 at the Old Bailey. Yeah, she's a very strong-minded woman, and uh, she made the excellent point that here was um, Jenny Johnson in court, saying, oh, nobody understands the pain I've been through. Nobody understands. Nobody wants to be in my shoes to know what I've had to be through and all this sort of thing. And Michelle Johnson, uh, Michelle Hadaway pointed out and said, you try being in my shoes. When my daughter was missing for 22 hours, I was seven and a half months pregnant at that time. This is Michelle Hadaway. And I was climbing over trees and searching in undergrowth, desperate to find my, my daughter. And, you know, for 22 hours, she did this before... Um, the bodies were eventually found and that she's had to live with that for the for 35 years since then. It, Johnson was astonishing in two days in the witness box. Uh, she managed to blame everybody but herself for the situation in which um, she found herself. She blamed Russell Bishop. She blamed Russell Bishop's brothers. She blamed Russell Bishop's mum. She blamed Russell Bishop's solicitor. She blamed the police then. She blamed the police now. She blamed um, the extraordinary. She blamed the judge and the jury in the original trial for failing to see that she was clearly lying. <laughs> that was unbelievable. <laughs> the best things too. She got so uptight that at one stage she actually blamed the Pinto sweatshirt itself. <laughs> <laughs> How did she do that? Well, you know, exactly. This poor old sweatshirt had done nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> on the wrong end of, of Jenny Johnson's fury. It's quite quite a bizarre performance. But, it, I mean, when you were looking at that in court, I mean, were, you, were people almost laughing at that kind of nonsense? Well, or? no, it was. It, it, it never got to that. She was, she was red in the face and furious and shouting, you know, I had no choice, I had no choice, you should, you weren't there, all this sort of stuff. And, yes, it was uh, the, the prosecutor, is Alison Morgan, that you remember, uh, Ben, is extremely talented, uh, yeah. um, uh, young... Uh, QC, uh, and she was brilliant, and she landed some real zingers on uh, on Johnson and that, uh, and and she had enough ammunition then, in her closing speech to actually nail the whole thing down, yeah. very successfully. I mean, was there any sense or any doubt in your mind that there would be um, a guilty uh, verdict? Well, I, I was worried all the way through because duress is such an easy defence to mount. Um, but the, the, the judge pointed out that about the immediacy of the threat and also um, the fact that, that uh, uh, Johnson was clearly lying. There's, there's no two ways about it, you know, which, which was good because you can't recreate what it was like 30 years ago. Uh, you know, I lived in Brighton 35 years ago, and I, I knew that, that, that Johnson was, was a tough, hardened, streetwise woman who would go to any lengths to support her man and the lifestyle that her man uh, brought into the, uh, the, the equation. Um, and, but she was painting herself as this poor girl that she got pregnant at 16. She was uh, one of eight uh, siblings uh, that she was booted out of the house by her parents who didn't want her because she had got pregnant at 16. And that she was in this coercive relationship with Bishop and uh, he was brutalizing her the whole time. Um, that's an easy one to sell, particularly when you've got 
medical records to back it up. So I was concerned that uh, uh, that the jury wouldn't see through it. But the longer that she remained in the witness box, the greater my certainty was that they, uh, there's only one result here. Especially when perhaps she started losing her temper. Yes, exactly. That that they, the more she went, and of course you remember the old adage that if you're going to lie, you're going to have to have a very good memory. Yeah. And you know that she was clearly making mistakes, and uh, uh, there was contradictions emerging, and that sort of thing. And of course, if you keep on at that, you realise that uh, the lies can't possibly be the truth because they're always changing. Yeah. So, Paul, your connection to this case is huge. You've mm. written a book. The um, Babes in the Woods murders, mm -hmm. and what does this verdict mean to you now? Well, it it, it means a, a huge amount to people in Brighton. Uh, this is is this case achieved nationwide attention, uh, but people in Brighton have lived with it all these years, and the fact that there was no um, uh, conclusion to it that there was uh, uh, for all thirty odd years. The, um, the killer wasn't brought to justice. Uh, and so until, the, you might remember, the, the double jeopardy law was, was reversed and Bishop was able to be tried again and put it back on trial for the second time and then convicted, that there was, it was an unsolved murder, this horrendous uh, sexual uh, murders of two little girls. Um, and it had a huge impact on Brighton on that. Now, the effect uh, of uh, what's happened in the last week is that uh, it's closed a door about how um, Bishop was acquitted in the first place. Uh, that uh, it's true that the, the prosecution case wasn't strong. In those days, um, forensic evidence was in its infancy, really. Uh, uh, but also there was very, very serious errors made by the prosecution in that 1986 trial. But at the heart of it, what um, was the, I would think, conclusive uh, moment for the jury about the incompetence of the um, prosecution case was the fact that its star witness, Jennifer Johnson, completely denied everything that was put to her. That um, that, that was the, the, the heart, really, of why Bishop was acquitted. And now, this last week, she's faced the justice that she's uh, uh, managed to run away from or escape from for all these years. And this is a... Is a um, a line in the sand, uh, not just for the families involved, um, but also for, for, for the people of Brighton. That it's put to bed what was a, um, you know, a horrendous unsolved murder. Victoria, weren't you a person of Brighton once? <laughs> I would think, as journalists, you end up as people of wherever, don't you? I've been a person of Salford for a bit. <laughs> yes. Go on, what? sorry, tell me, tell me when you were in Brighton. You thought yes. I what? What did you think I did? Tell me, yeah. Victoria, when you were in Brighton. Hmm. I went to Sussex University. Ah, yeah. Um, and then I worked at Heart FM in oh, yes. Port Slade, I think Port it was. Port Slade, was... yes. Yes. That's right, and I yes. I drove a heart wagon. <laughs> well, there you are. You're a Brightonian yourself. You know all about uh, um, the the special issues that come with uh, being uh, living in Brighton. Where so, are you in Brighton? I live by the station in the North Lane. Oh, uh, do you? Yes, yes. So it's very handy for getting up the line into yeah. London. Um, I thought you'd be on the seafront. Well, uh, we did um, uh, have a flat there on the front for a few years, but we've. Uh, uh, 
later we moved to closer to the station. I um, thought you'd be on the seafront drawing lines in the sand. <laughs> well, as you well know, as Victoria will tell you, there's no sand in Brighton. It's all, <laughs> it's all, oh, no. all pebbles. <laughs> A lot of waddling beachgoers. That's right, who, who spread their blankets out on the pebbles and sit on them. And they look like Swiss cheese. Staring out to the, to the uh, English Channel. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, but returning to more serious matters, I, I suppose that the, the takeaway from this for a lot of people will be the murders in uh, originally were utterly awful and tragic. Mm. But almost what's really shocking about Jane Johnson's crime is that she directly led to a brutal attack on another child who never needed to be a victim of crime. That, that, that's absolutely right. That it was down to her that Bishop was freed back out in the streets thinking he was bulletproof, that he could just do what he wanted. And um, uh, there was a campaign to try and reopen the case. But uh, two days after he received a letter from the, uh, the chief constable saying that the case wouldn't be reopened, i.e. he was completely scot-free now, uh, he attacked this other little girl in, in very similar circumstances and um, uh, uh, sexually assaulted her and stripped her in exactly the same way and uh, at a local beauty spot called Devil's Dyke and discarded her. Uh, but being February, when he threw body into a bush and she was just a tiny little seven-year-old, um, she hit the hard ground, bang. And there is a, a theory that having been strangled and basically left for dead, hitting the ground, having been tossed into the bush and hitting the ground, bang, started started the heart again. And that is how she survived. And she got Incredible. to her feet somehow and stumbled off. And there was a nice couple who were walking on the Devil's Dyke, spotted her and immediately uh, put the coat around her and took her off and raised the alarm. And that was how lucky enough she was to survive. The tragedy is, the tragedy is it that, is. that um, she did give evidence in the court case after that. Um, they, they arrested Bishop immediately and there was found a huge amount of evidence to show that he had done it. Uh, and she was a bright little button. I mean, she'd made, she, she knew he had thrown her in the boot of his car and she, re he, she remembered the color of the car. She remembered what was in the boot. Uh, and, various, and there was enough uh, forensic evidence uh, surrounding that. She also picked him out of a ID parade. And um, when she appeared at court, she really looked, um, you know, a bright little eight-year-old as she was then. Um, sadly, many years later, um, she had post-traumatic stress disorder. And to this day, she's a very sad uh, sight. She's very uh, uh, mixed up and confused and is damaged, seriously, seriously damaged. And all her ambitions of a career and what have you have been destroyed. And that obviously is down to Russell Bishop but the very fact that he was in a position to attack her is down to Jenny Johnson. Yeah. And also, um, of course, her lies in the original trial about how she was treated by the police will have yes. very much damaged the reputation of, of police officers who were doing a good job. Exactly, that, that, that's right. Not only was this a, uh, uh, an unsolved murder, which is a horrible stain on Sussex Police's uh, reputation, but the individual officers which... Um, uh, were doing their job honestly and, and professionally, were subject to the most horrendous allegations of, uh, of corruption and, uh, uh, and, and uh, browbeating. I mean, even um, her barrister uh, claimed that uh, they'd been gaslighting her, which is, you know, extraordinary 
uh, allegation, which, to be fair to him, he, he withdrew soon afterwards. But it was even so; it, it, that was the strength of, of the, of the attack and the allegations that she was making and continue to make. And as I say, that uh, when um, the police arrived in 1990 after Bishop had attacked the, the other little girl, um, she went for them. So it was a physical attack, and um, and and you know, yelling and shouting as well, and claiming that um, the real killer was a, a bloke called Barry Fellows, who was the father of one of the two little girls murdered the first time round. And this, this is horrendous. This is absolutely horrendous. And the Bishop family and their uh, associates have been peddling this rubbish for years. And it, it, it is an absolute disgrace. And it's, there's another bloke whose life has been ruined, not just to have his own daughter being um, uh, brutally murdered in the most appalling manner, uh, manner imaginable, but then to be accused of being the killer himself. It is... Yeah. It's wickedness beyond belief. But the police presumably never really took that seriously because they knew it was Bishop. Well, yeah, I, that's that's right, Ben. That's absolutely right. That they they knew they had their suspect, and it certainly wasn't Barry. And um, but this stuff went on after Bishop was acquitted. Uh, he was brought up, uh, and the entire family were paid a lot of money by the News of the World. Yeah. And there on the front page of the News of the World was these allegations about then unknown person, which was clearly about Barry. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this set the ball running. The, the, the yeah. news of the world, uh, the highest selling newspaper in, in Europe at that time. Um, uh, and it, these allegations got around. If it wasn't Bishop, who else was it? Um, and yeah. the, the news of the world was happy enough to pay out, you know, uh, published a, a small correction and paid out compensation. Yeah. They, do, they, don't, they don't care. That's right. They don't care. But it went on and on. And the allegations surfaced again as recently as 2007. Oh, really? And, yes. And, and they were made again. And the police went to arrest Barry as part of, um, um, you know, their, their uh, investigation into these allegations. Absolute nonsense from top to bottom. So he was being arrested again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just staggering. The original trial took place in the era of double jeopardy when you, know, you couldn't be tried for the same crime twice. Mm -hmm. And the police had that thing where afterwards they would make a statement saying they were not seeking anyone else in connection with it. Sort of it was the big way of pointing the finger. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I remember exactly they, they, um, uh, when uh, Bishop was acquitted and he and his family went across to the, uh, the pub on the opposite side of the road from the, uh, the courtroom in Lewis uh, called the White Hart. And yes. there uh, out came Chris Page, who was the officer in charge of the investigation. And uh, we, of course, asked him, and the TV cameras were there, what's, um, you know, uh, who, what, what is the next stage in the investigation if, if Bishop has been acquitted? And as you say, he came out with the immortal words, we're not looking for anybody else. Um, and I knew from that moment there'd be trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, that wasn't wise, but even though it was said at the time, it was, uh, it's, it's still not the wise way to go about these things. Yeah. I remember you saying, Paul, when we spoke about Jamie Bulger, um, that you didn't believe in, I don't know if it was just that specific trial, but you didn't believe in just utter wickedness or, or just downright bad. And just applying that to this trial, what picture, because you've mentioned the Bishop family mm. and Jenny Johnson 
their characters. Do you do you have, do you see any because it often repeats itself, doesn't it? Do you see that they had trauma? Did they have horrible lives? What what kind of background did you get? Well, they, they, the Johnson put forward uh, as part of her defence that she had a bad background, which wasn't true. Yes, she was one of many siblings in and had much older parents, and that she was booted out uh, at the age of sixteen. But they brought her up a decent. Decent with these, the, her parents were decent people and lived in Bevendine, it's uh, not far from Moscow. Uh, um, uh, that, so that 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 is nonsense. I, I can understand a bit about um, the bishop family standing by their their lad. You know, you don't want to think that if you're the mother or the father, that your son is capable of doing this. You don't, as a brother, you don't want to think that it's possible uh, that he could have done this. Um, but the fact in it, but with Johnson. Johnson knew he had done it because she knew that the, the Pinto switcher belonged to Bishop and Bishop had told, and it, in prison letters, he'd, he'd, he'd explained exactly what the case was, that the person who owned the Pinto jumper must have been the killer. And that's why he's explained that, you, you know, uh, the importance of the Pinto, and that's why you've got to change your, uh, change your statement. So Johnson herself knew for a fact that Bishop had done it, and yet she wanted him uh, acquitted, back on the streets, and back home living with her. This is a child killer, and a, 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 a paedophile, sexual predator, murdering paedophile, living in. She wanted living in her house with her two children. I, you know, I give in. What, what is the thinking behind this? This is just mm -hmm. staggering, and it is a selfish. It's a sign of her selfishness that she's prepared to tolerate that in order to have the lifestyle that she wanted. There are those cases, aren't there? And this is one of them that sort of that hang over um, a, a city, a town, a country for, for for decades. And you know, I I thought before this has been a big part of your entire professional life. And I think it's fascinating when we when we focus on that sweatshirt and think that actually. This was a time before DNA testing. So, you know, it would be simple now. You'd take the T-shirt or the sweatshirt, you DNA test it, and you'd, you'd probably find a, a profile pretty much straight away, and that would be, um, you know, game over. That's right. It is amazing to think how on earth they managed ever to get any convictions, you know, <laughs> in the days before uh, forensic science and DNA and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, this, this, that's exactly the point, that when... Um, Double Jeopardy was uh, revoked and science had moved on so so much, uh, they were able to go back to those uh, original uh, swabs and samples had taken from the, the sweatshirt, put them under new techniques, and as you say, immediately it all lit up like a, like a, like a beacon. There was a mm. uh, bill, billion to one evidence of, of Russell Bishop himself on it. There was also evidence of um, Jenny Johnson herself being on it, and also Bishop's then other girlfriend, Marion Stevenson and the dog. I mean, it was just. Don't bring the dog into this. Did you have a go at the dog as well? That is how, yeah. That, that's, uh, yeah. Russell Bishop. 
That's right. That's right. <laughs> Russell Bishop's mum, Sylvia, uh, was quite an uh, accomplished dog trainer and uh, exhibitor at Crufts. Uh, and uh, they, their family dog at that time, Bishop used to take it for walks around Wild Park, and that's how he knew the park so well, uh, the, 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 uh, the woods so well. Um, it is amazing that something that's 35, uh, well, then 25 years um, ago, they still have evidence on it. Mm. Of of that's so microscopic and impossible to see, and and yet so detailed of not just the killer, but everybody who, who lives with him, his entire family, virtually. Incredible. <laughs> yes. Mm. The whole thing is incredible, actually. Mm. Yes, and it, it is a, a, an astonishing uh, story, and as you say, you know, thirty five years is it's uh, more than half my lifetime as it is on this. Uh, uh, this case. And I still, as I, I think mentioned before, that this is the biggest story to happen in, in Brighton, well, since the war, perhaps. Uh, bigger than the uh, IRA bomb which blew up the Grand Hotel. Because in terms, in Brighton terms, the bombing was someone came over from Northern Ireland, planted the bomb to blow up people uh, from London who were in, in Brighton for a week. But the Russell Bishop case was clearly it had to be someone living in Brighton. And all those years when it was an unsolved murder, there's always that thought that it might still be living in Brighton. It's, it's uh, something that dominates conversations, whether it's a pub or a dinner party or in the street or anything like that. It is amazing how that- Presumably, Paul, I mean, if, when, when he was convicted of the, uh, the 1990 attack, mm. at that point, presumably in the pubs, um, and bars of Brighton, there wouldn't have been many voices against the idea that he had actually carried out the babes and the wood killings. Yeah, that, that was the, pretty much certainly that, that uh, um, it's not always the case, but the, the similarities between the attacks were so uh, clear. Um, and yes, that, that, that what had been a, a, a town divided in 1987 when he was cleared was now united, it had to be Bishop. But, you know, um, until he's actually convicted of that, uh, that there isn't that, that certainty that it, that it had to be him. And also for the families, it was yeah. an unsolved uh, matter. For, that, for them, it was still, uh, um, you know, the, the doubts about who it was um, uh, still stood out and they had seen no justice and no um, uh, resolution of, of their daughter's murders. I mean, you mentioned that you spoke to Michelle Hadaway. I mean, how does she feel now? Does she? I mean, is this closure? Is is this finally the, you know, the the, the chapter ending, as you might say? Well, she never. There are other issues, but that that's for another day. Uh, but yes, this was uh, a, a massive movement. I mean, uh, a massive relief. Bishop case itself. Uh, was really, uh, they had so much evidence against him. It was a, pretty much a slam dunk prosecution, that one. This time, this was five weeks of very, very hard fought uh, matters. And in fact, the, the two guilty verdicts, perjury and perversion of the course of justice, were both by a majority. Um, oh. 10 to two for uh, perversion of the course of justice, 11 for one for perjury. It was, um, um, uh, it shows that, you know, and the jury were out for three days. Uh, there was some debate about it, certainly, uh, you know, this, this wasn't clear cut. And as I mentioned that, you know, there's that awful feeling that there was quite a serious possibility she was going to get away from it. So, yes, Michelle is, is um, relieved uh, and, and, and delighted as well with, it, with it, the strength of the sentence. Um, the maximum for perjury is seven years. So to get six is, uh, uh, you know, this is a top of a range 
sentencing. But uh, ultimately, you know, that she is, uh, she's not in the best of health. And um, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, she's still angry, I would say. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing will change that. I think it's probably worth pointing out, especially as we do have listeners who aren't uh, in the UK, that in the British criminal justice system, when we talk about a majority verdict, it's not like seven to five. It that's has right. to be at yes. least ten, doesn't it? So that, that, that's one right. more person, actually, on, on the on the ten-two verdict, therefore, one more person could have swung him. Uh, absolutely, that's right. And, um, you know, that was a serious danger. And the longer it goes on, uh, you know, there is that danger that uh, the jury will be hung. They will then have to go for a retrial. But she's halfway towards getting off because uh, yeah. there can only be one uh, retrial. Um, and the usual rule for the Crown Prosecution Service is the two hung juries. And that's it. They, they abandon the prosecution. Uh, so, yeah, there, there, there was serious uh, concerns about this. What about you? What are you going to obsess about now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pleased to say that I retired five years ago, and uh, this might uh, just be a moment I can I can walk away a little bit further from from, the, from these issues. <laughs> Hang up the notebook for good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have to say that, uh, uh, that I did find that my uh, shorthand has got severely rusted up over the last few years. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, one of those things you really need to use regularly, isn't it? You you do. That's right. And I I find uh, and the other thing is that uh, the the the, the squiggles and the um, the loops and all that so that that is fine it's the bit that you can't remember what is the shorthand outline for so you write it in longhand and that's the bit you can't read back <laughs> that's bad paul i know i know i know i, know. I thought you were going to say your poor arthritic hands are struggling to make <laughs> oh lovely ben come oh, on a rotty, you know that. podcast for a bit of abuse why don't you well, it, as Paul will know well, being a TV reporter, I never really did shorthand. It's one of those things where we were just listening for that one, in any court case, obviously you'd hear the whole thing, but we knew that we would get, you know, press association copy to tell us most of the facts. What we were listening for was that one, well, as you said, that zinger, the, yes. the one moment which where everybody would turn around and go, oh my God, did they just say that? Or did that yes. just happen? And yeah. then that would be the thing that you would be re- sort of the focus of your report. because you. You were just worried about what you were going to look like on telly. <laughs> no, I always look the same, middle-aged bald man. <laughs> a middle-aged bald man, you did quite well with um, obsessing about your outfits for telly to look right. Oh, yeah, well, you know, okay, so, you know, I, I always, <laughs> always look like a thug in a suit. <laughs> the, king of the, the king of the tank top you were. Yeah. Well, I, I, got, I lost count of the number of times I got re- mistaken for a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> I also felt very sorry for you uh, TV people who had to uh, uh, broadcast to the nation from under an umbrella or oh, with God. a howling wind in, in, the, in that, that Well, especially outside Bailey the Old Bailey, you'll remember, because then you had the two narrow buildings, then the wind would come through and it was sort of like you'd be squeezed up and whip up a speed through there. It was like everything that could blow away would blow away. It's luckily not my toupee. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of it, right? It's a, it's a sort of a wind tunnel, isn't it? And uh, yeah. a bit like Downing Street, which is another, you know, the sun never shines in, uh, never gets yeah. into Downing Street. It's, it's, it's absolutely yeah, cold. These, these really well-designed prime media locations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> with these wonderful Victorian buildings that were never meant for TV cameras and things. <laughs> yeah, no, At least no, working I mean, in radio, no one cares. <laughs> and, and, cares. And I think, as you mentioned before, Paul, the other great joy of being a broadcaster was that 
um, everybody else would have long gone home. We'd still be standing there outside at seven o'clock when, when the court shut about four hours earlier, or even worse, at 10 o'clock at night. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And, and not just the 10 o'clock national news, but you had to wait for, for the local news at sort of yeah. 20 to 11 and over live now to Lewis Crown Court. There's a shivering wreck. There's just yeah. sort of broken bottles and cats walking past and a few drunks and that's it. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> Nothing gladdened the heart like being told, I'm sorry, the national news at 10 has dropped you. But Southeast today, what you were like half past eleven or something. <laughs> Just in time to miss the last train home. <laughs> I love the way you can still lever in a last-minute whinge. <laughs> oh, you know, like any reporter, I can never tire of whinging about stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody understands the things you went through. Yeah. <laughs> I know. People are still not so understanding. I, uh, there I was at the coal face of news. That's it, yes. <laughs> Suffering for your viewers. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, look, it's been great to catch you, you again. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. Not at all. It's been an thank absolute delight, as always, Ben. It's <laughs> nice to see you and, and Victoria as well. And um, Oh, Paul, you too. Thank you so much. You've really shed... <laughs> A lot of light on this trial for us, and it's been it's been really wonderful talking to you. Just in in terms of sort of just trying to you know understand a little bit more. Well, also, Paul, I mean, you know, we can't we can't beat having somebody on to talk to us who is sat there, who watched, who saw what happened. It's all the non-verbal communication. I mean, that's what a reporter's really there for, anyway, isn't it? I mean, otherwise we just all do this stuff via sort of remote copy. That, that, that's absolutely right. It, it, it is such an important part to actually be in court. You know, even on days when it, nothing much is happening, it, it, it's, you have to be there. It, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's what um, uh, us reporters do. Mm, totally. Well, look, great, great to see you again, Paul. Great to talk to you. Good to uh, see you both. Before you go, just tell, tell us the title of your book and how people can get it. Yes, it's called The Babes in the Wood Murders, and uh, it's available from, uh, published by Blake. Uh, it's out in uh, uh, in paperback, and uh, as uh, if you don't mind me saying, I can tell you you that it's a rattling good read. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Nice to see you, Paul. Take care. Bye bye. See you then. Yeah, thank bye -bye. you very much for coming on our podcast again. It's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>